0: The sponsor for the month is Banner of Truth. If you're looking for a conference that's organized to help you rest, has faithful preachers that you've never heard about, because more than five preachers in North America know how to preach, and will focus on great themes of the Bible, then I would encourage you to consider attending the Banner of Truth East Coast Ministers Conference May 24th through the 26th in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. The conference theme this May will be on communion with God. It's a conference for men in the ministry and for those praying about entering the ministry. Men come to this conference again and again because of the like-minded fellowship, great books that are on sale, and the way it helps them recalibrate their hearts in the ministry. You can learn more at thebanneroftruth.org backslash ministers. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor. coming come alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I am excited to talk to a new friend and brother from across the pond over, I don't know how how many thousands of miles away, but I'm talking to my new friend, Oliver Alman smith today, and we're going to talk about confessionalism and Christian resistance, specifically a perspective from Reformed Baptist world. Oliver, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today, brother? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jared. It's good to be with you. Good deal. Let's go ahead and pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll get right into the content today. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you that we are united as brothers because of the blood of Jesus. I thank you for my brother Oliver and the hard work that goes into any kind of publishing, any kind of writing, any kind of research, especially on topics like this. When we look at Christian resistance in a specific stream of of Baptist confessionalism, Uh, there's a lot of difficulty that goes into that. So I thank you for his work uh, in this, and I pray it'd be a blessing uh, to many, and it would be helpful to us uh, as we are resisting in the West tyranny, and we want to do that in a biblical way. We want to honor you and, and do it in the way that you would have us do that as we try to obey you over men. We don't want to be vigilantes. We don't want to seek vengeance. We want to honor you as we try to obey, as we shepherd our households, and as we shepherd your people in the church And then as we walk in our civil responsibilities as well. And so lead us, we trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Oliver, why don't you go ahead and bring us up to speed? I'm interested to learn more about you. And I'm kind of in the same boat as many of my listeners here, just learning about you and hearing your story. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and then what it is that you do.
1: Thank you, Jared. So good to be with you and uh, really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'm Oliver. Uh, I'm. 51 and i've been in the ministry since 1998 in the same church Uh, i was converted when i was 17 my conversion experience actually took place in chicago of all places Uh, when i was on a school uh, drama trip uh, performing 12th night at a school in chicago and uh, got myself into a lot of mess and into a bad place and the lord was very very gracious to me I've never had a problem believing in sovereign grace because um, I know the only reason I am saved is by God's soul and uh, I'm so thankful to him for that. So since he regenerated me and called me and saved me when I was 17, I've pretty much devoted my life to uh, ministry in one form or another from the earliest days And uh, I was very thankful when the Lord in his kindness uh, saw fit to call me and set me apart for the ministry when I was 27. And uh, then to be ministering here in North Manchester, uh, where I've been all these years. I'm married to Alison. Uh, The Lord has blessed us with six children and our eldest is getting married in a week's time. Uh, So we're very thankful to God for that mercy Uh, He's marrying a lovely Scottish lady uh, up in Edinburgh next Monday. We look forward to that. Uh, Two of my other sons are are being prepared for the ministry. Actually, one of them is studying with IRBS in Mansfield, and uh, he's doing some courses here in the UK, where we've formed a partnership with the seminary to offer courses here on the ground. And men such as uh, Jim Renahan and Jason Montgomery are coming over and teaching for us. Um,
0: And uh, so we're thankful for what the Lord is doing. Amen. So many wonderful things. One of the things I ask the pastors who come on is we want to hear stories of the internal and external call into ministry. And I would love to hear what that was for you. You said it was 27 uh, years old. You've been in the ministry since 1998 you've got 13 years on me when it comes to life, and I was uh, not called into the ministry and established as a pastor until 2008. So you do have a few years on me, but I would love to hear because each person's, there's similarities to each person's call into ministry, but for each man, there's also some uniquenesses. So what was that process like for you, both that internal process and then that external process uh, into ministry?
1: Yeah, i appreciate the question jared and i appreciate the distinction between the internal and the external and of course it is the same holy spirit who oversees both aspects of that so they must both be found there um internally really it was from my conversion when i was 17 um i i felt within that um my life had to be devoted to the lord in that particular way Um, I'd always been quite garrulous, quite good with my mouth, and uh, I just knew that I had to use this for God, Uh, but it took a long time. I was arrogant, I was conceited, I thought I knew everything, and I had to learn, I had to be disciplined, and wow, that was hard. Um, I did a lot of reading, a lot of study, and all of that really was God's process, so it was a good 10 years really Mm -hmm. until the that internal conviction was refined and eventually the church uh where i was a member set me apart and uh and i received the call to the ministry here in in north manchester uh, back in 1997 and then i came in 1998 i began here just a few months later Um, so yeah both are essential absolutely and uh when the spirit works Through both of those means, we have the the internal conviction and the external call. Praise God.
0: Amen. Well, I am interested in your new work, and I've got the title here in front of me. I want to read it for our listeners, and then I want to ask you why this book, why this particular moment? I, I have some inklings as to why it would be in this particular moment, but I don't want to assume and impose that. So I want to spend some time talking about this. I also want to spend some time after that. I want to talk about some heroes of the faith that are in your neck of the woods of Martin Lloyd-Jones, just a hero of mine, and also Charles Spurgeon, who's a hero of everyone's, it seems like. And that's in your neck of the woods. And in your area, you do have a unique history of Christianity of both strong, I mean, there's just a rich history there, obviously. And then you guys find yourself in a particular moment now where so much of that is simply seems like remnants it's you're you're building ruins that were there once upon a time spiritually and uh, trusting god to do that work but before we get there broken wharf is the publisher and the working title or the title of the work is under god over the people the calling and accountability of the civil government a confessional perspective and i am curious as to why this book and why this particular moment
1: okay well we all know that uh, 2020 was a seismic year, and that's the right word to use, you know, earthquake, and and it it was pretty high on the Richter scale, wasn't it? So early in 2020, uh, we all experienced to one degree or another, the massive impact uh, of lockdown, not so much of a pandemic, we've had pandemics before, but this new, brand new uh, experience, not of temporarily shutting down for a week or two but of of altering uh the course of civil life and and uh and the impact of that on on church life for multiple months and even years that began and it hit us like a freight train and i don't know anybody who was ready for it i've not met anybody who said yeah we were ready when it came we knew what to do uh, so none of us were ready some of us were particularly unready and i think here in the uk we were more on the side of particularly unprepared mm. and so when we were hit by that freight train uh, we took had to take some time to take stock to get our bearings you know we really were out for the count and once we'd had a few weeks to do that uh, we realized um that we had our work cut out to prepare a proper response Now, thankfully, the Lord had rooted us here in our church in uh, the second London confession 1689 over a period of more than 10 years we've been studying it and we'd adopted it as our own confessional standard. And so we knew that's where we go, so we began to study uh, chapter 24 in particular over a series of Bible studies in the late summer autumn of that year. And that really was the beginning of the book the book has come out of our church experience it's come out of our studies it's come out of our discussions as elders here and it has spoken into our particular situation and it has helped us to know how to respond i would say having a confessional position on this matter has helped our church to maintain its unity in the midst of tremendous pressure, uh, external pressure from the authorities as they've brought to bear what could only be described as a combination of propaganda and fear to pressurize us into a certain way of thinking. And we've been able to use our confession and our confessional uh, context and background as a sifting mechanism because there's something in there we needed to consider you know it wasn't all lies we needed to consider some of those things but we were able to sift out so much of the noise and so much of the confusion get to the the nub of what it was we needed to consider and then respond biblically and confessionally so that's that's the context to the book
0: amen that's so helpful I have the confession here in front of me, and we're also a confessional church, and the 1689 is our confessional standards, and there's so many questions theologically that people don't even know to ask until these sorts of pressures come upon you, and one mm-hmm. of the things I had preached in my sermon this last weekend on medical tyranny is that statism laid dormant for so many people for so long until it was brought to our faces with this... With masks was brought to our faces with vaccines it was brought our bodies with vaccines it was brought to our doorsteps to our church gatherings it was brought everywhere and it seems like so many not it doesn't seem like it's a reality so many people like yourself around the world are asking questions what does god have to say and unfortunately some of the responses from people have been so misinformed because of lack of confessionalism or whatever misunderstanding of romans 13 or misapplications of romans 13 first peter 2 And uh, I'm curious if this was the beginning stages for you, as you guys were pressing into the confession, if that opened up Pandora's box, or if this was, let's run down the rabbit hole for a little bit. What were some of the historical works then that began to help form your understanding of this, and then even began to help you as you're writing this new work? And as you put this work out, what were some of the historical works that helped you? Uh, And then maybe some of the modern works as well that there are limited supplies of modern works that address these issues but were any any kind of works helpful for you as as you were working through this and as your people were trying to navigate through uh, what's the biblical response to this
1: yeah i think um just just to give a little bit more clarity to our context and and our where we were when this hit us i think as a church we were ready for explicit state opposition to the church okay we prepared ourselves for that even constitutionally we had stated look if the if the government comes along and persecutes the church and tells us you must do this or you mustn't do that and it's explicitly anti-bible then we're ready for that what we weren't ready for was a whole state um imposition on not just the church but the whole of society you know we weren't ready for the state coming in and saying 20 30 million people need to stay at home Mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to ban you from leaving your homes and that includes christians but it also you know includes lots of other people we weren't ready for that and and that's really the the clever nature of of the way in which satan has used this situation Mm -hmm. to, to to uh, accomplish his uh, wicked, wicked objectives and cause so much harm as he's done to the churches. Coming to your specific question about where did we look for help? Uh, I think the greatest help that we found was in the work that has been done on, on the confession in recent days. And, you know, hmm. a man like Dr. James Renahan, and and his work edification and beauty which looked into the the historic position of our fathers in the faith um and and why they took the stand that they did ecclesiologically Mm -hmm. and you know and approaching our our attitude towards the state from our ecclesiological position because as reformed baptists we have a distinctive approach to church life and a, a distinctive emphasis on the authority of Christ in the church and therefore if this if the if the civil authorities encroach upon that then we are immediately alerted and we are responding in the way that we ought and his work i would particularly recommend that to to your listeners is called edification and beauty and he looks into the historical context uh, and what our fathers in the faith meant uh, when they wrote what they did. Um, for us here in the UK, uh, I think we're probably in a, an even worse position than you guys. You see, what, what you need to understand as Americans is that you have a history of revolution. <laughs> you, you have a history of, of fighting for your freedoms. We don't, mm. we don't have that history. Uh, in that sense, we've had it easy we we've had a christianized governing authority ruling over us for centuries and um so we've had no revolution i mean our revolution in the 17th century petered out before it hardly even got going and uh, so there's been a, a tremendous history here of of lo- being law abiding just going along with what with what we're told so the idea of resisting the authorities over here just doesn't have anywhere near the same traction that it would have uh, with you across the pond, to use your phrase. Yeah. <laughs> so I think th- th- that there'll be some general comments that make an answer to your question.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. We, uh, you know, we were in similar situation and I, I, I admit that it is different. And I think for us here, there, there's so much compliance, there has been so much compliance. But as a for instance, I walk in to pay my property taxes in our county courthouse, and on one side of the metal detector no mask is required on the other side of the metal, of the metal detector mask is required and in that moment i have a decision to make of compliance to something that is unconstitutional in the sense that this is a violation of my conscience and this is a violation of the confession in romans, romans 14 and this is where me and our family are at where we've decided to not wear masks and so I address the police officer kindly and say I don't have to do that, and resist and say I will not do that. And they fortunately accommodated, came out to the other side of the of the metal detector and allowed me to pay my property taxes, which are way too high, by the way. That's another conversation. Um, and that sort of resistance is common here, and I don't know if that would be uncommon in your place, but uh, yeah,
1: that would be that would be extremely uncommon here. That is my point, Jared. Mm,
0: yeah common
1: even amongst believers and so it because it is so uncommon it is not understood properly you know you mentioned romans 14 i i you know it's applied all one way here so romans 14 would be applied here in the sense of so and so is wearing a mask so and so wants you to wear a mask of course he's the weaker brother so you must wear the mask but the idea that it would work the other way. That yeah, we have yeah. a brother here who has a conscience, a sensitive conscience, which says, "Look, I, I cannot wear this mask."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that just yeah. brothers here who take that view are very, very few and far between, wow. and uh, they've had a real tough time, a really tough time being understood and misunderstood.
0: Yeah, and I will admit that there has been misunderstandings here because those who have taken those positions here, as well, there is the the Gospel Coalition, Tim Keller, Third Way approach to so many things in the Christian life had manifested itself here as well to where R.C. Sproul, Dr. Sproul preached a sermon years ago about the tyranny of the weaker brother and how the weaker brother often uses their weakness as a mallet to smash the conscience of those who would be In the text with meat sacrificed to idols categorized as the stronger brother and we've seen that here as well to where conscience are are being bound one way but not uh called to the weaker brother calling out to the weaker brother to say hey listen become strong and don't judge that person whose conscience goes the other way and so there's certainly that here as well but i want to switch gears a little bit to your work and talk about your work there's other works. Dr. Renahan had a work that was helpful for you. We we have, I don't know if you've heard, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates or by uh, Matthew Truella. Uh, phenomenal, smaller work. Um, really doing some work on the Matabur Confession and the outworking of uh, some Lutherans in centuries past. Tell us about your work. What's distinct? Why? Because I'm going to read it. I'm going to get my hands on it and find out how to get my hands on it. And I want you to tell us how to do that here in a little bit. It is
1: because, and I'm very concern to use the right terminology it's not because of a pandemic it's because of the state response to the pandemic right it's because of the lockdowns and the and the and the mass instruction to an entire society that they can do this and can't do that they must do this and they mustn't do that and how that has encroached upon the church we needed to respond to that and it seemed to me we needed a biblical whole council of god therefore confessional response rooted in our history that that was mature, that was nuanced, and that was solidly grounded. Uh, And that's really why we've put this work together. And I think here in the UK, uh, the response has been almost universal, not quite universal, but almost uh, of either acquiescence, some more reluctant, some less reluctant some tremendously enthusiastic uh and some less reluctant but nonetheless full acquiescence to what the state has demanded and those mm-hmm. that demanded and those who have resisted have been a tiny tiny group and and that tiny group has been marginalized as extremist as uh, unloving as unwise as uh causing harm as you know Uh, giving the church a bad name and all these kinds of things and uh, and i just think it's been incredibly imbalanced Um, and we've had a very very naive response so the work that i've put together is basically structured in, in the following way the first three chapters look at the accountability the calling and the power of the civil authority so we we look at the whole question of What is the civil authority? Why does it exist? And what is it there to do? Mm. Uh, We we look at those questions. We see how God has appointed the civil authority. We see how the civil authority is therefore answerable to God. Its power comes from God and it is under God, Uh, just as any authority across that the kingdom of creation is under God, nothing yes, amen. outside of, of God's authority and control. So every civil authority will answer to God. It only exists because God has willed it. Its work and its functionality is defined by God. We look at what the civil authority should be doing. So many Christians are totally ignorant. If you were to ask most Christians, what is the role of the civil authority? They'd probably say something like e- education, health and economy. Well, wrong answer. Wrong yeah, answer. Right. That, that is not the role of the civil authority under God. It, the role the primary, the primary function of the civil authority is to establish the rule of law. It is to establish peace and order. It is to punish what is evil and to reward what is good. It and it has been mean. given. And this is my chapter three. It has been given the sword in order to do that. It hasn't been given the sword in order to educate people it has been given and to punish people who disagree with it it's been given the sword in order to reward the good and to punish the evil and particularly to defend the vulnerable and the weak Mm. so for example when a a civil authority launches an all-out war with the sword on the most vulnerable in our society, i.e. the unborn,
0: yeah. we,
1: we have an immediate, massive problem with that civil authority. We should question everything that it then goes on to say and do because it, because it has failed in its most fundamental responsibility under God in a, in, a, in a massive way, in a seismic way. And so when it comes along and says to us, as it did in March 2020, we love life and we want to defend life And we're going to lock down the whole of society in order to save life. And at that very moment, and this is what happened over here in the UK, it brought in the most liberal abortion laws ever, because here in the UK, in March 2020, our government made it possible for women to obtain pills through the post. To slaughter their children in the womb in their own home without even visiting a clinic without even seeing a doctor and that law has now just this last week it has just been made permanent having been told two years ago that it would be temporary for the pandemic only these people are, are, are foundationally fundamentally denying their responsibility to under yeah. god and they're going to answer now that's the behavior of the beast yeah look at revelation look at daniel yeah, that's the behavior of a monster. It's not the behavior of this kind of as we as we're told, some kind of neutral group that is doing its best. No. these are people who are suppressing the truth
0: yeah.
1: and denying and undermining and failing in their primary responsibilities. So that's my first three chapters. I'll take a breather there and if you. Want,
0: yes. well, i love I love seeing the passion because that is the primary role is reward. The good punish the evil in what you see in first Peter is so clear. And as God's servants, when evil is rewarded and good is punished, when up is down, left is right. God's people with this prophetic voice, you know, it sounds like you've been informed also by sphere sovereignty and Abraham Kuiper and the understanding that at least in some sense uh, with that way of thinking that God's word is authoritative over the state, whether they recognize that or not. We have an obligation, as John the Baptist spoke to Herod, for us to speak to civil authorities and say, you are God's servant. You must act like it. And I see within you, which I love to see, is you you have your inner American patriotism rising up inside of you of the Black Robe Regiment in the Revolutionary War to say, pastors, churchmen, you've got to see this. And if we don't speak with a prophetic voice and let them know to bow their knee to King Jesus now or before it's too late, then we... Are the ones that are advocating our role as God's ministers and churchmen, and so I love those first three chapters. I I can't wait to dig in, and I love to hear this. I want to ask, so far before we get into the rest of the book, okay? How's this being received? How are your brothers? How are the churchmen there who have gotten this hand this book into their hands? They've opened it up, cracked it open, and if you are amongst the minority, do you see this being responded to positively or negatively, or kind of this general? ambivalence. What's the response? Well,
1: we're, yeah, we're slightly ahead of the game, Jared, because the, the book is not actually published yet. Okay. It's, out, it's out next month, May. Okay, uh, It's just going to the printers now, I think. So we, we wait to see what the response will be. But I suspect that the response will largely be uh, unfriendly. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that it will largely be um, uh, questioning and undermining really uh, uh, of the points that I'm trying to make. But I hope that it will open up a debate and I hope that it will stir up uh, many to think more clearly about these things. And I do hope that by rooting it in our confessional uh, history um, that that men will, will think, okay, so this is what our fathers in the faith taught Uh, and they live through troubled and difficult times, uh, we we perhaps need to give this more careful consideration. And Mm. I think that point that we've made, perhaps we could develop it, about the motives of ungodly civil magistrates really does need to be emphasised. The the idea that that a civil magistrate can be neutral, if we could put that around it, that they are operating in some sort of uh, moral vacuum, where morality is not the issue, and mm-hmm. we're just trying to do the best we can. It is is profoundly unbiblical, isn't it? Yes. Any man, and that includes any civil magistrate, is either loving the truth, seeking the truth, promoting the truth, and therefore loving the good, seeking the good, and promoting the good. Or he is denying the truth, denying the good, and suppressing it. Just look at romans one you can't miss that point so if our civil magistrates are denying what is true and suppressing what is good punishing the good and rewarding the evil isaiah 5 20 if that's what we've got on our hands then we need to respond accordingly amen that i think is where so many christians have just naively meandered along going along with with the the civil authority to the great harm of ourselves and our churches.
0: Yeah, Oliver, it's interesting. The secularists and the statists are puritanical in this sense. They really believe that their worldview is the standard by which everyone should bow the knee. Mm. They believe it's pervasive, it's all inclusive. They are evangelists and proselytes for their religion. And they demand Christian churchmen, they demand Christians everywhere to bow their knee to their religious presuppositions, and it's pervasive. And Christians, on the other hand, have lost this worldview understanding. We've, we've in large part here, and it sounds like there, somehow or another in politeness or in the understanding of, of God's word that's been diminished or minimized, believe that the authority of God's word stops after the ecclesiastical sphere, that God's word is authoritative in the Christian home, God's word is authoritative in the church, but then we let secularists and statists tell us what to do in the public square. And we have to recover this understanding of God's word as the authority everywhere. I mean, that's what the statists and secularists do with their religion. And yet we have God's word that's uh, binding for everyone and over the authority of, of everyone. And so I, I love that you're doing this work. Do you see that? I mean, do you see the secularist, the status? It is a religious underpinning. It's not just this uh, um, uh, you know, neutral secularism.
1: Without doubt, without doubt, Jared. And if we use the the, the phrase worldview, then our worldview directs every thought we have and every choice we make and every action we take. Uh, And so what we see our civil authorities doing now in terms of destroying marriage, in terms of ruining the family, in terms of actively engaging to deny and defy anything that god's word teaches about morality and righteousness and what is good and what is true then really if we're not awake to that what what does the future hold for us yeah we we, you know our churches are done for and, Mm -hmm. and that's where this whole question about about the lockdowns comes in does does the civil authority have the right to criminalize worshipers because that's where we've been in the uk we've, we've been in a situation where if you go to a building where worship is taking place you will be accused of a criminal offense and in november of 2020 we were actually in a position where the government was saying you can go to a church building to run a food bank, you can go to the church building to run a support group, you can go to a church building to do what we believe as the civil authority is the prime priority, which is caring for the body. But if you go to that church building to worship God, then we will criminalize you. Now, at that moment in November, it all became so very clear to, to, to those who wanted to see it exactly what the agenda was. And uh, I think the fact that even then, so many Christians, evangelicals and many even reformed people were still sleeping. It's shocking. shocking,
0: And we need to wake up. We um, do. We do. And from somebody, you know, again, from from over here, there were many that did lock down and we didn't get to that point. We did see some of that in Canada with Dr. James Coates, with with Tim Stevens. Uh, if you're familiar with those cases at all, up in Calgary and, and Alberta, Canada, and uh, oh, Dr. Yeah. Joe, Dr. Joe Boot and the Ezra Institute experience, they they experienced similar kinds of pressures. Where we're at, we didn't experience that kind of thing locally where we where we are. Uh, I called the city mayor up and said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep meeting," and I wanted to let you know. And we have police officers in our church, and we gathered and told people, this is what we're going to do. And fortunately, we didn't have that pressure. But what does it take for Acts five twenty nine to rise up inside of us to stand alongside of Peter and look with shoulders squared and eyes to eye and say, we're going to obey God over man. God tells us to gather. If you tell us not to gather, we will disobey you and we will obey God. We will go and we will gather. We will greet one another with a holy kiss. We will pray on the sick. We are not allowed to social distance as Christians. Sorry, we cannot do it. And churchmen have to see this. I mean, Oliver, you have an obligation, and fellow churchmen there, there, if anyone over in the UK is listening to this, biblically speaking, we as pastors, as churchmen, have to touch the sick. We have to draw near. We cannot social distance. And if the state ever says, you must social distance, we have to kindly turn to them and say, sorry, I cannot obey that command. We have to care for the sick. And... And
1: the, the problem is, Jared, that, that, that then is quoted to us you know things from Calvin, Luther and others who, who, who themselves chose to uh, not to meet on certain occasions because of plague or something like that. And uh, my answer to that is that was a decision for the churches. You know, if, if a church makes a decision for a week or two or whatever, to do something there's some bomb threat or the building's been burned down or you could think of lots of reasons why temporarily you might not gather but that's a decision for the church to make it's not a decision for the civil authorities to impose on the church and again i I would say to our brethren over here once we get to the point where gathering for worship is criminalized have uh, what will it take for us to wake up right you know, over here in the uk we have a tremendously high view of the law we have a tremendously uh high threshold of uh, civil obedience amongst amongst christian well, amongst all in society really we generally speaking the the, the rebellious instinct the resistance is not within us mm-hmm. and this is a difference i think between us and, and yourselves yeah uh, but Uh, How much does it take? And and this is where we go in chapter four and chapter five. So five chapters in the book, chapter four and chapter five. We look in chapter four at at the role of the godly magistrate. So uh, our fathers in the faith are very clear. Uh, chapter 24, paragraph two, it, it is perfectly right for a Christian to be a civil magistrate. But as such, he is called to live as a Christian within that context he can't he can't as you said before he can't leave his christianity in the church and in the home and then come out into the civil realm and just be "quote" neutral there is no neutrality so in the civil realm he is a christian and he is to use his position as a civil magistrate for good you know Mm -hmm. we look through the bible men like daniel his three friends uh uh, uh, many other instances of those joseph and so on who who were god's men in in ungodly places and they used their position as godly men for good and they stood look through the history of the church you look at a wilberforce or a shaftesbury or a cromwell these are men who took up positions certainly over here in the uk in the civil realm and did so much good, but their Christianity was worn on their sleeve, on their collar, on their forehead. It was right up there. And, mm-hmm. and that's what we need. If we, we need Christians in the civil magistracy for sure, but they need to be Christians. And, and if being a Christian in the civil magistracy is no longer acceptable, then we can't be Christians in the civil magistracy
0: because mm-hmm.
1: we're not willing to bury our Christianity. It just can't be done.
0: Yeah.
1: So that that's chapter four. Okay. And I think this, this issue of naivety, um, we need to wise up to what ungodly civil magistrates are trying to do. Mm-hmm. And if Christians will enter the, the state realm, whether it's, you know, at the state level or for yourselves or at the, at the federal level and, and actually call out the agenda of the godless, much good could yet be done. But that Mm -hmm. takes courage. And how many have that kind of courage?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, And then we move on in Chapter five, finally, to to our calling as citizens under the civil magistracy. And that's really where we begin to look towards the end of the book at the whole question of civil disobedience and resistance to to state authority when they overreach yeah uh, or when they command us to so you've got the two issues you've got the issue of when you're commanded to do what is explicitly wrong i think we were we were ready for that you know if the government tell us we have to do something that we know is is morally wrong but also if they overreach yeah uh, then we need to be uh,
0: resisting there as well yes very helpful okay in the American context, as uh, people under a constitution, we are a constitutional republic, and we have representatives of the people. So we, the people of the United States of America, establish a constitution. We have three branches of government, and we have elected and appointed officials that have delegated authority under the constitution. For us to honor the governing authorities or submit to governing authorities, Romans 13, or to honor the submit to the human institution we're a part of, 1 Peter 2, to the emperor as supreme and to those governors sent by him to punish the evil and reward the good. For us to do that, the human institution we are a part of is a constitutional republic. The emperor that we have is not the president or state governor. It is our constitution established by the people, meaning each American citizen is a politician we have governing responsibilities as citizens of this country and we have to wake up to that in england where you're at in manchester okay what what is supreme there i'm curious is it british common law is it how, how does that work the human institution you're a part of as as a citizen of great britain what are your obligations your citizen obligations
1: yeah, we probably don't have time to to explore that in full because it is just so complex over okay. here. We don't have a written constitution, Jared. As, I mean, your comment there w- would indicate that you you understand that. So we're not in the same position uh, as you at all. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is British common law, but the, the the relationship between the judiciary, which is responsible for enforcing the law and then the legislature which is responsible for making the law and then the executive and that's really where where the gray area comes in for us so the role of the of of the judiciary is clear they are there to enforce common law and common law is the result of centuries of of judgments that are made over time you know that's why every new judgment impacts on the nature of our law because we don't have a a written constitution that's the judiciary then we've got the legislature the parliament meets and makes the laws but then you have the executive which is a subset of that legislature it's the government of the day Uh, and and they they have the responsibility for kind of overseeing as it were uh, this whole process under the queen so the queen is a constitutional state she doesn't uh, interfere. It, it, she, she, she's purely a figurehead. Uh, but but her government then, the executive, uh, as for us, Boris Johnson and his cabinet and the Conservative Party at the moment, are then responsible for the daily government of, of, of the nation. So that, that's how we are constituted. It, okay. It's obviously very different to yourselves and my concern over here it is that we as citizens are holding our executive to account for the way that they behave
0: yes and
1: are uh, as you said earlier on as ministers it's our job to make known to our people and then through them to the society at large including the governing authorities what the bible teaches uh, about the responsibility of the civil authorities and we need to hold them to account so there are movements over here we write to our members of parliament we write to our prime minister we we we, we make known uh, the position of the church this is an important uh, thing to do but it would work differently
0: really okay. to, to, well, to, even though that does work differently the principles that are the same under any government system would be Acts five twenty nine, obey God over man. Even if that is Nero coming to the early church and saying you must or you shouldn't obey God over man, and then also no matter what government system, they are all under God and held accountable according to God's law. Would you agree with that? One
1: hundred percent. That's the Absolutely. title, Michael. Under yeah. God
0: over under God. The people. So
1: we we, we the people are under the civil authority, but only insofar as they are under God. So Amen. If the civil authority ever takes us anywhere that is against God, then we have the responsibility to resist them.
0: Yes. So
1: they know we are not going there with you because that is against God. Now, it's important to make the distinction. You, you, you mentioned earlier on in this podcast about uh, going paying your taxes. Now, you might think that the taxes are too high, but the scriptures are very clear. You just jolly well got to go and pay them. Mm -hmm. Um, But if that same government that is that is enforcing those taxes and you have to pay them, then says to you, and by the way, we require you to send your children to these state institutions to be educated by us, according to our worldview, then you say no, because Mm -hmm. that's not. Your, yep. God has not given you that authority. So we need to draw these lines. And, and Christians are so ignorant. They're so yeah. ignorant. They just yes. don't understand these things. They haven't thought them through. So that's really what I'm trying to do in the book is to, is to get us to think again at a very basic confessional level. What does the Bible teach about these things? Let's think about it.
0: Yeah, that's good. Hey, how are we doing on time? Because I have a couple other th- fun things I want to talk to you about. Are you Are you okay on your end? I'm
1: okay. Yeah, you okay. carry on.
0: Okay, let's do this. This has been a great conversation. Riveting at the end, I want you to tell everybody where they can get the book. I mentioned talking about Lloyd-Jones and Spurgeon, but I want to not do that. And I want to tell you about in the 17th century, there were five Sparks families that came from England to the New World. Okay, here we are. Now they're in uh, America and their Sparks is all over the the country. So that's that's my lineage is, is England. My mother's side is Wales. And so the family tree goes back and we've been able to trace that back. All right. Now our country went through the Appalachians, just country folks. We're just country folks. Now we settled and my family lives in Southern Illinois, uh, which is a big difference from Chicago. You being in Chicago, no, five and a half hours South of Chicago is where we live. I'm interested to know, this is a, just a, a fun piece of this discussion, the perspective on the American revolution. I, and I see the American revolution as something massively different than the French Revolution. In fact, the American Revolution, from what I've understood, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, was a lawful resistance and defense against opposition that was lawless according to all their own, to, to Great Britain's own common law. From your perspective, with this history of resistance that you see in America, was it a lawful or unlawful, and this is just for, for, for kicks and giggles here, was it lawful or unlawful historically? Because at one point, John MacArthur said the American Revolution was unlawful and it was a violation of Romans 13. He has since, you know, stepped back on that. What's your perspective being in Manchester and on that side?
1: Yeah, I think your contrast with the French Revolution, Jared, is very helpful. Um, so if we look at the French Revolution, clearly that was unlawful. Uh, They were duly constituted authorities, the the monarchy at the time. And not only was their resistance uh, unlawful, but the way they went about it, I mean, it was it was a horrific, unjust bloodbath, uh, the French Revolution. And, um, you know, it it, it led to terrible things really taking place. And, and the denial and the defiance of the rule of law. I think what you have in America is something extremely different because remember that the, 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 the first people who went and colonized America were from Britain. Yeah. Um, and, and why did they go? Uh, they went because they were deeply unhappy uh, with the um, situation in the motherland, in the homeland. And they wanted to begin a, a, a new life and a new way of, of of living and so from the very beginning they um th- they set themselves out deliberately and consciously in some ways to duplicate england hence mm-hmm. new england uh, mm-hmm. but in some in some ways to be very different hence new england mm-hmm. so it's different it's different and and, and, and then when you've got the, 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 the situation developing much later, um, as you say, of, of, of the British uh, behaving as they did, we can't really go into details, um, and then resistance coming from the American side. I, I think it's a far more nuanced, nuanced yep. situation. I don't mm-hmm. think it's nice and neat, it's nice to kind of come drive, but it's very, very different to the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. You're not looking at out-and-out rebellion against uh, duly constituted civil authority within a particular realm. You're looking at a, 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 a realm that is thousands of miles away. And remember the difference and the distance back in those days was so much greater. Right. Uh, trying to maintain its control over a people who've established themselves in a, in a completely different way. You know, mm-hmm. are wanting from the very start to, to live out their life religiously, constitutionally, practically in a different way. So I think I, I think it is very different to yeah. the French Revolution and, and the scenario Um, it it can't be made parallel. I mean, as I said earlier on, our own British uh, civil war and our own situation here where we were resisting tyranny as was under Charles I, again, that's another different scenario. Uh, And so the whole British situation of um, the concept that the king could be guilty Mm -hmm. of, treason against his own people that that was a big moment over here and again i don't don't think that was a nice simple cut and dried scenario so i would say it's nuanced here in britain over there in the states the french revolution is is just a horrible bloodbath yeah And, and it's just in defiance of the law i think that's very different sorry to any french listeners
0: no. <laughs> yes, yes. Sorry, French listeners. Uh, but history is like that. History is uh, nuanced and angled. And, and uh, we have to realize that God is sovereign over that. And there's so many questions about history that are tough and knots that are tough to untie. But this has been a lot of fun. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we need to wrap this thing up. We've been going for a long time. And I want our listeners, I don't know if there's stateside, United States side uh, distributors of the book, what's the best way when the book releases next month for us to get our hands on it and read your work? And then for those that are where you're at, what's the best way for them to get the book when it releases?
1: Yeah, so we're actually in discussion or Broken Wolf is in discussion with uh, a potential distributor in the States, but that's not yet um, established. Broken Wolf was only launched in January of this year. Um, so the best way to get a book is to go on the website brokenwharf.com w h a r f e and the reason it's called broken wharf is because that is the location in 1689 on the river thames uh, where the men met to uh, adopt the confession um, and and to uh, sign up to it so that was that was the location um, and, and you can pre-order there and it will be sent to you straight to your doorstep over there in the States for very minimal shipping. Um, So just go on the website and place your order.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We have been talking to Oliver Alden Smith. And did I get your name pronounced right at the end there? Pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Oliver. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for having me.